This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our podcast is available 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you will find us. Be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, and me on LinkedIn. Now, leadership is always challenging. Add in a global pandemic, economic volatility, natural disaster, civil, political unrest. The world we are living in is full of challenges for everyone. But if you're a leader, you have to care for your team as well as yourself while making difficult decisions that are often as hard to communicate as they are to hear. Today's guest is one of the co-authors of a new book that can really help, Compassionate Leadership, How to Do Hard Things in a Human Way. Marissa Afton is a partner and head of Global Accounts for Potential Project, a global research leader development and consulting firm. Marissa, welcome to Women at Work. Oh, thank you so much, Laura. It is great to be here with you. I've been looking forward to this for so long, but we're going to need to look forward to it for just another moment because I just want to tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Um, Marissa helps leaders and organizations unlock their potential to create superior performance, resilience, and innovation. A mindfulness practitioner for over 25 years, Marissa transforms organizations by teaching the people within them to transform the mind. She's a sought-after speaker about the impact of mind training on high-performance cultures, as well as the mental qualities of excellent leaders. And she's worked with leading companies, including Bloomberg, LVMH, and Pfizer. So, Marissa, as I'm reading the book and thinking about your background, I was thinking about vocabulary, the importance Mm -hmm. of words to help us understand the kind of skill and framework that we're trying to develop. So when we talk about compassion, can you tell me what that word really means, especially how it's different than empathy? Mm. Wow, let's dive right in there, shall we? But I love that you are inviting a clarity around our terminology. And because it is so important, because some people do have uh, an interpretation of empathy and compassion being synonymous. And not that there's anything wrong with that uh, perception, but we're really looking at the definition of compassion. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it quite simple so it's, it's kind of digestible for anyone. Compassion as we're defining it and, and how we looked at it in leaders is simply the intention to be of benefit. And the key word in there is intention. And then you asked me about how we're looking at compassion as it relates to, say, empathy, which is also a really core, strong, and important leadership trait to have. And we hear a lot today about empathetic leadership, and that is wonderful. However, empathy by itself can have some downsides, and here's why. Empathy, when we're looking at how empathy shows up neurologically in the brain, Empathy shows up as an emotion. When we're asking people to empathize uh, with other people, known or unknown, we're asking them to feel what they feel. And when we are feeling what another person feels, 
there are a lot of downsides that can happen associated with that. We can, first of all, we can become biased because we tend to empathize with other people who look like us, are in our tribe, uh, people that we know and trust already at the expense of others who may need our compassion uh, just as much, if not more. Um, it can make us very narrow-minded because it's hard for us to empathize with multiple people at a time. Uh, it can lead us to making not great decisions because we were making decision based, a decision based on one person rather than looking at the big picture as a whole. So that's just like a little snippet of how we are defining empathy versus how we're defining compassion. But compassion, once again, very simply, the intention to be of benefit. It's more of a cognitive state, a thinking state rather than an emotional state. That was so rich. I want to unpack a few pieces of it, partly to test and make sure I've understood it and to see, because um, then we're going to build upon some of this. So I think when you talk about empathy as the experience of having the emotional experience that another person is having, I think of empaths, whether I happen to have one in my family or whether we're talking about Star Trek, but that idea <laughs> that they are filled with someone else's emotions. Yeah. And to start off with, well, it's an amazing thing that somebody could be that open to feelings. I have to imagine it's exhausting to live that way. It can be incredibly exhausting if you're living that way for sure. Um, and what we know and what we've seen certainly in the last couple of years with everything in your opening package about like where we've we been these last two years, when we are operating only from empathy, empathy alone, that emotional, uh, what we can call it as even emotional contagion, because mm -hmm. we're so much feeling and experiencing the other person's feelings, it can lead to what's commonly referred to empathetic burnout. It can lead to us feeling like just overwhelmed, like we're paralyzed by the experience of feeling other people's feelings. And how can we not? Hopefully we're all still human. We all see and recognize the suffering that's happening right now, whether it's from a leadership perspective or simply just a human to human perspective. Right. But it can absolutely be exhausting to exist solely from a space of empathy alone. So it's beautifully put. And then it's also another danger. And I think I want to probe this because it's so important. And I never thought about this before um, is the relationship between empathy and bias. I have to confess yeah. when I was reading the 1619 project, one of the things that I came away appalled at was the lack. And the word I used at the time was the lack of empathy yeah. for the people that had power at the time over those that didn't. Um, yeah. This is raising an interesting question of that, which we'll get to about power and responsibility. But um, that idea that the lack of empathy, and there may be many things that cause it, um, but it may also exist when we don't relate to somebody, which is its own problem. Never mind that when you were talking about we empathize with people who are like us, is the root cause of that, that we can, um, that the empathy comes from our ability to see ourselves in them, that the similarity between us and them is what enables us to be empathetic. And therefore it's a barrier to um, being emotionally tuned into people who are different. That is certainly part of it, of course. And, you know, the other thing to remember is we are actually, as humans, hardwired for empathy, which is a mm -hmm. good thing. You know, we were social beings. Uh, we see ourselves in relation to others, not 
solely only in relation to ourselves. But in that, there's a little bit of a double-edged sword because the others that we are relating to most are the people, again, in my tribe, in my community. You know, you think about the situations and there's just so much out there uh, that where people have researched this. But even in, for example, I mean, I just mentioned to you, I'm, I'm speaking to you today from New York City, right? I'm empathizing with everybody who, when I think about my community here, like who on my floor, my next door neighbors in this building on this block, but I can't possibly empathize with every single person throughout all of New York City because they're just it's too much, right? right? So our brains try to simplify, compartmentalize, and we look at the people who are closest to us. And some of that obviously has to do with gender, with race, with many other factors. But some of it is just like what's easy for the brain to mm. compartmentalize into by category versus the other category. And empathy is really limiting in that way in terms of looking at myself, my people versus you and the others. That's a fantastic way of framing it and a great transition to um, another important idea here and in the book, which is that when we're in leadership roles, um, if we're if our empathy is limited to if if the way that we're making decisions is only informed by empathy and empathy kind of by default or definition is only going to be able to in include a certain scope of what people are experiencing, then how can we be responsible in taking care of everybody? And how can we be of benefit when we're not capable of taking in all that information at once? Right, right. And that's where it gets tricky. And again, there are, there's a lot of greatness that comes from being empathetic. And in fact, I, I just want to say that you really can't get to compassion without having empathy. So the answer isn't, okay, let's have less empathy because <laughs> right. wow, we're, we're really That'd in trouble. Bad. That would yeah. be bad. We're in serious trouble that way. But I think the key here is have that spark of empathy and be able to recognize when you're seeing somebody who's having a difficult time, let that be the signal to you that maybe this is a place to shift into a space of more compassion. And again, that compassion being defined as how can I be a benefit? How can I demonstrate care and concern for somebody and take action in some way? And again, and also here, sometimes that action is no action, but simply mm -hmm. showing up and being present and having a listening ear and demonstrating that I care. But the benefit from a leader perspective, as you said, is you're still able to have that big picture view of how I am uh, standing and supporting a person while looking at the team, the organization as a whole, and not just focused on one person, one situation, one day. Right. And the inputs that are coming your way in that moment, as opposed to a, a fuller range of kind of data inputs. So now let's, I want to talk some more about this, this idea of what it means to be I think a feeling leader to be in touch with um, the kinds of emotional experiences and needs and challenges that the people we lead are facing. So when we think about compassion in that regard, um, help give us an understanding of what we're talking about um, for whatever it's worth. And this is often my gateway into leadership is mm. thinking like a mom yeah. that, 
You know, if I only existed in the world in an empathetic way, especially with my daughter, then when she's crying, I'm crying. When she's scared, I'm scared. It doesn't help me help her. Right. Is that, how does that apply then to leadership when we're dealing with organizations and grownups? Well, yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. We, we, if, if I'm a leader and I have to manage not just one person, but hundreds, thousands of people, not just one priority, multiple priorities. I've got, you know, business priorities. I've got stakeholder priorities. I've got to figure out where we are in the market and stay ahead of it, innovate all of these things. And if, as you said, I have one person on my team and let's face it, leaders in the last couple of years, especially have had so many people that they have had to support in ways that they have never been asked to support Mm -hmm. at that level that we've seen in terms of watching our team members, you know, have to balance work home priorities, especially as you said, the women at work. Um, balancing everything at home while also maybe caring for somebody who's sick versus maybe managing your own health while managing um, somebody who's lost a loved one. I mean, it's been tough. It's been really tough. I have a team of 12 people. Yeah. And at any given point, there were three to five people on my team who were either sick, had people in their families were sick, had devastating illness yeah. in their families, mm-hmm. personal traumas and losses. Yeah. And um, if I was existing in an empathetic way with them, which I try to do one-to-one, but there's also no way I could carry all that pain at once and yes. still make decisions on behalf of everybody else. Exactly. The brain gets overloaded, quite frankly, right? When we get sucked into that emotional space, we cannot make clear decisions because it's almost like we're blinded by the experience of simply uh, having that emotional contagion that I mentioned earlier of feeling that other person's feelings. And so it's a great point that you just mentioned about like, I can't think straight. I can't make good decisions. I don't even know what decision I'm supposed to be making. What is the priority of what I'm supposed to be focused on right now? It's all too much. And this is where the opportunity is for us as leaders to simply take a step back. And that step back, it doesn't have to be like a physical step back. It's it's more of a mental step back to give yourself a little bit of space and again, to recenter yourself in that moment so that you can clear your own mind about Mm -hmm. how to be a benefit. And it's simply creating that little bit of space between you and the person that you're experiencing that that, uh, difficult situation, that challenge with, that enables you to actually be more grounded, more present and more effective. Right. So one of the- To be able to support them, yeah. So one of the things that's- um, embedded in that. And you, and you said it before that intention to be of benefit. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned that, you know, people think of leadership as a power position. I'm in charge. Mm-hmm. I'm the big mahoff. I'm the boss. Um, but that's not about being of benefit. Um, there's a responsibility that comes with leadership. Connect the dots for me between the responsibilities we have and who are we being of benefit to? Yeah. So I would say, yeah, that kind of old style uh, way of leadership, which is much more hierarchical, much more I'm the lead, do as I say, almost do as I do, that kind of, that has to go out the window when we're talking about compassionate leadership here. 
what we're really looking at is, you know, yes, there's core responsibility, but it's also responsibility to ourselves as leaders. Leaders who are more compassionate versus in that space of empathy and just that feeling the suffering of others, they are, they have, they are less likely to burn out themselves, which again has an impact on people. They drive better engagement from people. They are having better sense of trust, better sense of psychological safety where people can show up even on their worst days and be completely themselves and ask for help and feel safe and asking for help. So even though compassion can feel like a little bit of a soft skill, we actually consider it a bit of a power skill, if you will. Uh, because, yeah, because we actually need leaders to take up something that's quite tough for most people naturally, but doing it in a way to help themselves and to help others. So with that, I want to connect the dots of to one of the studies that was shared in the book, um, which I think our audience is not going to be surprised to hear, but probably delighted to hear, is that there are different correlations with gender and age that map onto um, empathy versus compassion. And so talk to me a little bit about that from an age perspective and from a gender perspective. Yes. Well, you said people uh, hopefully won't be too surprised, uh, but we did start seeing some correlations where as you're older, moving forward in your career, you have um, a higher sense of compassion. And what I really want to talk about here is compassion is your own Mm self-rating plus the rating that your followers give to you. So it's not just what people think about themselves. It's also how they are perceived by others. Um, And then women also are rated as more compassionate. And we haven't talked about the other factor that we really look at, which is wisdom. So it's wisdom Mm -hmm. and compassion together. That's really the secret sauce to elevate leaders um, to, to where they're really building engagement. Now, why is this? Why are we seeing this? One of the things is around experience. So the more experience that we have as leaders, uh, the more that we're going to be able to draw upon that experience to develop greater compassion. Uh, And what's interesting is that there's been a bit of a false understanding that women, uh, maybe, maybe it's seen that women are very empathetic, but maybe not as compassionate, but women actually are rated as highly compassionate by their followers. Now, the, the, the challenge here is that when it comes to how women versus male leaders are seen mm-hmm. by their followers, what we've noticed is, and what the data is showing, is that women tend to rate themselves a little bit lower than their male counterparts. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always, right? right? It's like, oh, not me. I'm not good enough. I'm not really how I perceive myself to be. But they are rated higher than their male counterparts. So, I mean, you can do what you will with those findings, but that's what the data says. It was a very, um, it was a funny chart because it just showed how inverted these two things are when rated by others. But so what some of the meaning that I make in that is, or um, whether it's meaning or things to pursue more deeply is that women who are acculturated 
as gross oversimplification, to not run away from feelings, to tune into feelings, and who have often had to become um, socially astute in order to function in the settings that they're in, um, bring a, a, fee, a an emotional vocabulary with them that men may not be taught or encouraged to cultivate. Yeah. And that um, when we can make the shift from simply having that vocabulary be one of helping us understand another person, mm. but we can put it to use in thinking how to help another person, yeah. that's where it's really transformative. Exactly, exactly. The other thing that may be um, interesting to pull this thread even further is this concept about leadership mindset. And another element that we were looking at was around male versus female, since we're talking about these gender differentials in terms of growth versus fixed mindset. Mm. And it tended to show what we're starting to see, and we're still digging into this right now because it's so rich. But what we started to see is that male leaders tended to have a little bit of a fixed mindset when it came to leadership in general. And it's this idea of leaders are born, not raised, like right. you're born a leader <laughs> and then you step into it. And then that's, as, that's who you're going to be. Whereas women leaders tend to have more of a growth mindset when it comes to leadership. And even if they don't feel like they're hitting that pinnacle of where they want to be, they're right. still striving to grow and become the leader that they wish to be in the future. And so even though there's that, um, I think it's a, a deep self-doubt as well as I think a, um, a taught um, tendency to have to not self-aggrandize because it's not considered socially acceptable. Right, exactly. Right. Um, that that dynamic still brings the pattern of women trying to be of benefit while continuing to grow means that there's an arc of increasing wisdom and compassion that can create greater effectiveness over time. Exactly right. Exactly right. There's one other piece I might just add here because I do think that there's some relevancy. So, I mean, bottom line, just again, only based on research, not trying <laughs> yeah. to bring in any biases here, but just based on research, when, when, you're, when you're rated, when you're rating yourself and you're rated by your followers as really high on wisdom and wisdom, just kind of brief definition is like having the awareness of the hard decisions that you have to make and the courage to do them with the compassion piece, the intention to be a benefit, those leaders, male and female, job satisfaction goes up, job retention goes up. And we know right now, right? Great, great resignation. A lot of right. people, they're not leaving companies. They're leaving these leaders, these managers who don't help them feel like they're being seen or heard. Burnout goes down. Well-being goes up. I mean, these are all critical business factors. Um, so it's having that growth mindset that you can grow into better wisdom, better compassion as a leader is actually a core business strategy to have. Absolutely. And to note that, well, you know, this is women at work. We're going to look at some of these things through the gender lens. Um, anybody, a growth mindset is available to everybody. And last I checked part of Carol Dweck's brilliance is that it's also something we can cultivate as individuals. So regardless of gender, regardless of stage of life, um, seeing how powerfully it affects not just us, but our organizations, it's something we can work on. Yeah, you bet.
Okay. This is comforting to know because um, it's all, it's almost, there's a certain irony in it. Like when I think about like whether it's little kids playing dress up or young professionals, I was one of them playing dress up as a leader and a grown up professional. We try and put on the thinking, the attire, the approach of um, things that I do think are often more rooted in symbols of power than they are in right. benevolent leadership and in compassionate leadership. Right. And to hear how critical these softer skills and approaches can be is, I think, really exciting. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. And just to nail it a little bit further, it is trainable. All of these are trainable skills that we can cultivate and build upon. And so when we say trainable, and we're going to talk about this in the next half hour some more, it's just some very practical, tactical things that we can build it. Um, In the journey of learning to do this, is it something that happens? Is it an, I'm guessing it's not an an overnight thing. Are there quick fixes or is it something that like building wisdom, we have to cultivate over years and years and years? Yeah, no compassion pills, unfortunately, not yet. I mean, yeah, I know, darn it. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's a training, it's a practice. I mean, look, I am on, I'm on the journey myself, constantly looking at places where I can reinvigorate uh, my compassion and wisdom. And then of course, trying to learn from the places where I have fallen in that space and, and of which there are many. And again, experience is the best teacher. And I would say one way to continue to cultivate that in oneself is to use experience not as a way to, again, kind of beat yourself up, which so many women do yes. develop that inner critic. It's use experience as a lesson for how to do it differently and better next time. So it's really how to show up better next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that um, I learned about in reading the bio and in reading the book is also your expertise in mindfulness. So one of the things I want to explore is when we think about the importance of compassionate, compassion and the way that you so aptly described it, of the intention of being of benefit. Can you talk to me about what is it in us that mm. can prevent us from being compassionate? And then what's within mm. us that we can call upon to help us get there more effectively? Mm. One thing that gets in the way quite simply is our own ego. <laughs> And ego is not a bad thing. I mean, we all have an ego. If you're human, you're breathing, you got an ego, right? It's just- Some bigger than others, yes. Some bigger than others, exactly. Well, that's the key, Laura, is we, we have an ego simply as a structure of our personality to understand who we are in relation to the world. And it's made up again of our frameworks and the things that we like and we don't like, and we're building our ego sense of self throughout our lives. But to your point, Laura, when we become egotistic, when we are letting our ego be the decider as it relates to how we're showing up and behaving and leading, our ego is driven by essentially fame, fortune, and influence, right? It, it wants to protect itself. It wants to protect its space in the world. And it wants to make sure that it's on top. So when we are in that ego space, we forget that others matter. 
And not only do we forget that others matter, we forget that how we got to become a leader is not by just being born a leader, as we were talking about (laughs) earlier. It was probably as a result of a lot of people, whether it's parents, teachers growing up, the mentors you had, the first professors that when you were at, you know, school, the first jobs you had, your own family now who support you and enable you to do the work that you do the way you do it. It's through others that we become ourselves. So being able to kind of take a break from our own ego is one way that we can start to build that sense of compassion for others, recognizing, hey, it's not all about us. So I want to go back to something that you said, because when I read it in the book and when you said it just now, there were three words that we think about all the time, but the way that this maps onto this felt so important to me, Mm -hmm. which is why is it that we, as holding places for these concepts, fame, fortune, Mm -hmm. and influence. Mm -hmm. And it seems like when we're ego-driven, when we're not being compassionate, um, part of it is that we don't feel safe. Yeah. Why is it that there's a safety issue that would drive us to seek fame, fortune, and influence? Right. What's the, like, the, the, the need that's driving us there? Again, neurologically, we know as humans, or we might not know this consciously, but there's a knowledge now that humans can't survive in isolation. You know, despite all of our reality <laughs> shows that are trying to show us differently, we simply cannot survive by ourselves. And, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of evidence that's coming out right now that our ability to be where we are as humans on the planet versus you know, other hominoids that have come before us um, is not a result of just survival of the fittest as we're mm-hmm. taught, uh, but survival of the kindest. It's because of our ability to exist in uh, collaboration with others that enables us to rise up and be successful and do the things that we do every day. But neurologically, our brain still says, oh, but maybe, you know, maybe it's not safe. Maybe I'm not safe. And the ones that seem to get in our minds, the best safety are people, and just look at our society, right? Right. People who are known in our world, people who uh, have influence over others, people who have resources. Right. Because all those things give certain amounts of self-control over your life. Correct. Now, but the irony is that leadership is often a very lonely experience. Exactly. So how do we deal with the fact that we could simultaneously be ego-driven to need affirmation that we're important and affirmation that we're in charge, Mm. especially in a role that can often leave us lonely, Mm. sad, full of self-doubt because we have to make a lot of difficult decisions and we're at a certain point in the proverbial pyramid. So yeah. how, how can we wrestle with those achingly human aspects of ourselves? Number one, you know, this, this loneliness can sometimes be self-inflicted, right? 
the the invitation for us as leaders who are feeling lonely is to reach out. Mm-hmm. You have peers, other whether it's other leaders within your organization, other leaders in other organizations in your industry or outside of your industry, people who can who you don't have to be so lonely around, people you can reach out to for support as well as the support that hopefully everybody is also getting from family, friends, community. That would be the first thing I would suggest. The other thing I would suggest is ask for feedback. Feedback from your followers on how you are showing up and what they see that you might need as a leader to be less isolated or less ego-driven. And again, I'm not saying that anybody is consciously I mean, some may be, but consciously getting their, letting their ego get in the way, but it happens when we're under pressure, when there's too much change and uncertainty, that safety issue that you talked about, Laura, whenever our safety is threatened, whether it's a physical threat, social threat, the threat of uncertainty, that's when ego comes into play. So that getting some feedback and some reality checking from your people can also help uh, with that. And stop us from being our own worst enemies at some moments. Correct. Yeah. So with this dynamic of leaders being as complicated as the rest of us, but having a unique kind of responsibility to other people, um, along with these kinds of practical tips of how to ease the loneliness, how to get some feedback, um, one of the themes throughout the book is how we can be more mindful, how we can be aware of when our ego is rearing its ugly head, when our deeper needs are guiding us instead of the needs of others. Um, And also you mentioned our inner critic, like there's a a lot of noise that goes on inside our brains that shapes the way that we behave. How can we quiet that noise? How can we become better friends with our own nutty brains? You said it uh, when you mentioned awareness, right? Awareness is key. How do we get awareness? We get awareness by allowing ourselves some space in the day to get friendly with our own inner voice. Because when we start to take a mental pause and build the awareness of how much is going on in our inner in our inner voice, our inner thinking, uh, we can start to put um, guardrails in place, if you will, for it. So um, building that awareness is, again, it's like a mental muscle. It's not something, again, we don't have a compassion pill. We don't have an awareness (laughs) pill. It is a little bit like going into a mental gym, as we like to say, to build that capacity, to build our awareness over time. It does take some practice, but the more you do it, and the first time you're you're, you're doing it, you might go, oh gosh, I really don't want to know what's happening. I don't want to have that awareness of what's happening inside my brain. But the more that you have, you build that awareness, the more you can put a little bit of that pause between what your mind may be telling you to do and what you actually do. So are there, is that, how do we do that? Is that therapy? Is that meditation? Is that 
um, a questionnaire we fill out for ourselves. How do we check in with our own brain that way in practical ways that we could start to do on our own? Yeah, fair enough. Could be all three, could be a self-assessment, right? Of which there are plenty out there, um, you know, and, and therapy is just the ability to bring awareness through an interaction with another person who helps you hold that space. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And then if what's most accessible to you is simply bringing some mindfulness into your day, and it doesn't take much, um, it takes the willingness to simply sit with yourself ideally in a quiet space. But as I mentioned here in New York, you can do it when you're on the subway, you can do it at any time in any place. And that's the beauty of mindfulness and allowing yourself to decrease some of that mental clutter. And at first, simply using your breath as a way to anchor your attention in the here and now. And most of us are not in here and now in the day. We are what we just did, what happened earlier, what's coming next, uh, and the 50 million other things that are cluttering our attention. But when we allow ourselves to simply be present, simply be purposeful and mindful in this moment, it allows for some clarity in our mind so that we can build an awareness of our own thinking. So I have to tell you, and in all candor, through my adult life, whether it was by therapists, writers, some friends, I have been told over and over again, you got to start meditating. You got to start meditating. And I would try it here and I would try it there and I can never make it stick. And then recently um, it was recommended to me again in a particular kind of meditation that involved a chant so that, you know, mm. I had something to do with my fingers. Um, and my, and, but um, I noticed some profound changes after just a little while. I do it for 12 minutes a day, nice. every day. Nice. And I noticed that, um, I was having a hard time. I was waking up feeling frantic, overwhelmed by how much I had to do. Um, I'm in bed, I'm checking my email. Mm. And when I started to do this meditation right before I sit down at my desk, um, I noticed that I'm more organized. I'm getting through my to-do list faster. Um, I'm sleeping a little better at night. Is this my imagination or could these two things be correlated? Definitely correlated. Yes, absolutely. And the research is very clear. Um, lots of data out there. Just do some searches on the correlation between mindfulness meditation and, as you said, better clarity, better sleep quality, better prioritization, better focus, reduced sense of uh, anxiety, panic, overwhelm. So it's, it's not just in your mind, but it is all in your mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I didn't make it up. So, and the other up. thing that I noticed, which is why I'm bringing it up in this context is that, cause I got to say, now that I'm finally doing it after, I don't know, 30 years of being, having it suggested, um, I'm totally on board. I also am beginning to feel like, especially if I do it before something I know is going to be challenging, that part of yes. leadership that's about delivering hard news or having difficult yeah. conversations, I find I go into those conversations more present and calmer. Yes. And they yeah. don't go in directions uh, I didn't want them to go in to quite the same degree. Yeah. This is exactly what we recommend, to be perfectly honest, to go into, and this is where the hard part comes in, in terms of doing the hard things in the human way. The hard part of leadership is mostly people related. 
It's when we're delivering tough feedback, when we're having to do a performance review, when we may have to let somebody go. That's tough. And it's especially tough because as humans, we don't feel good if we're doing things that impact other humans in a negative way. Uh, so it actually impacts us. We feel, again, back to that emotional right. contagion, it impacts us. But when we go into it, just trying to get through it or trying to make our point and getting out as quickly as we can, we are not being present. We're definitely not being compassionate. We may not be super transparent in terms of the why of this, uh, of why we're having this conversation. So all of these elements can be enhanced, better, better presence, better the, the, the courage to actually have that conversation in a mindful way, uh, to have it with candor and transparency. All of that is enhanced with mindfulness. Yeah, and I'm, I'm seeing it and feeling it now on a regular basis. So That's in excellent. this, you're also bringing up an important, um, like one of the kind of two polar opposites when we go into these hard conversations as leaders. And as you were talking about it, like, I just got to get this done, rip off the Band-Aid, it's going right. to be bad news. It's like a brutal honesty yeah. versus a caring candor. Yeah. Can you talk to me about the differences in those things, what they look like, and yeah. how do we... Why do they matter? Why does that difference matter? And how do we prepare ourselves to engage appropriately? So caring candor, you know, a lot of us think about uh, tough conversations um, as being, well, let's just be really candid. Let's just put it all on the table and have, as you mentioned, that brutal honesty. And then once everybody knows where we are, then we can move forward. But again, human to human, does not, I mean, think about it. Think about the time when you've been on the receiving end of brutal honesty. Did that help your mind think clearly about, you know, you were probably just defending your position mm -hmm. or feeling like you were attacked or yes. what have you. And even get a physical reaction as if I'm being attacked. Because your brain is receiving it as a physical assault. The, 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 the reception area in your brain is taking a, a social pain as a physical pain. So you do get that physical reaction. That is not helpful to our building of trust, our building of safety, our building of motivation, collaboration, organizational loyalty, any of that. And it also can't possibly, if the goal of the person who's delivering the brutal honesty, if their goal is to see change happen, Right. Change isn't going to happen if somebody's feeling terrified and assaulted. Absolutely not. No, it's it, it's either people are either going to dig down deeper where they are or they're going to run away and they're going to be done with it. Um, it and, and usually the intention is hopefully to help a person to move beyond a place where they may be stuck. And so I would say one key is check your intention mm -hmm. before you go into that conversation. You know, what is it, you know, check your intention, check your values. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it that you're really hoping to give this person as a gift rather than simply as, uh, you know, a change that you're trying to do. And because some people don't have the awareness in themselves that they're showing up in a particular way. And I and wonder if another dimension of that awareness, or at least I've seen this 
both in myself at times and certainly in junior staff that I'm mentoring mm-hmm. that um, like when you have to give somebody candid feedback, particularly for poor performance, yeah. one of the reasons why it's so per- important is it impacts everybody else on the team. Exactly. And it's a pain when you have to like the problem performer, like costs everybody time. It's like, you're going to have 11 meetings to prepare for the meeting where you have to talk to the person who behaved badly. Um, And so that you can develop a resentment for the person that needs that feedback. So how can we also go into those meetings, not just aware of how they're going to feel, but what's the garbage that we're bringing into it? justified or not, that may also influence how we communicate. Right. And it's back to awareness, right? Do we have an awareness that we may, maybe we have put this individual right or wrong into a box about, we put a framework around them about who they are, how they show up based on real experience in the past, but not necessarily looking at, we might not have all of the information, we may have had a couple of data points and just decided this is how this person is, this is who they are, and this is how I'm going to treat them. So there's a real invitation here to also bring some curiosity. Yeah, so talk to me about that. The wisest people I know and the best leaders I know, they always start there. How can you, what can we do to help us learn how to go into conversations and invite that kind of curiosity? I would say the first thing that you need is you have the facts, start with your facts, have them there, but it's not about conveying all the information and all the facts and really make sure that you're separating what I like to call the person from the behavior, right? Their personhood, their humanity, who they are as a whole person from just the behavior that you're trying to give feedback on. And then I would say, you can let a lot of that go and simply be open to how that person shares their experience. Because again, we may not have all the answers. There could be stuff going on at home. There could be a learning challenge issue. They may not have all all of the tools that they need to be able to do what they do well. There are all kinds of things that could be happening. So having your data there, coming in with your premise, but naming it as an assumption Mm -hmm. and then being open to how the other person can um, share their experience as well. So in a moment like this, like let's say I'm bringing somebody in and I have to talk to them, they're going on probation. It's clear that if things don't get improved, they're going to get fired. Things have gone wrong. We've had conversations like there's baggage here. People, there's a lot to be upset about. And um, if I go into that conversation, is it the right direction or the wrong direction? If I start with, I understand how you must feel. Oh, it's tough, right? Because you want people to you want people to feel like you get where they are and so many leaders make the mistake of assuming they know where somebody is i don't know where you are i can i want you to feel that i'm here for you and that i'm a witness to you and your experience but i don't want to pretend that i understand how you feel because that's a huge assumption And so that's, so, and I want to, this feels important to me because it's a kind of pattern that um, we deploy so effortlessly Mm -hmm. 
It can also be quite hurtful when we presume to understand the needs of all kinds of people who are different exactly. than ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention that in the very moments when we're trying to deliver hard news, help somebody grow, do something that's emotionally difficult. It's ironically the very thing that's going to backfire on us because we've now said, I know all the answers, even if none of them are right. Correct. And I would say maybe come in with a question rather than an assumption, you know, and, and, and again, the question could be as simple as, you know, going back to the beginning and the intention to be a benefit. How can I help? How can I help? I see this is what I'm seeing in you. Tell me whether it's what you're experiencing and how can I help? At the, so at the end of that conversation, let's yeah. hope, let's hope that I've gone into the conversation. I yeah. brought my curiosity. I'm not making assumptions. I'm asking yeah. questions. I'm learning yes. as I go. If at the end of the conversation, I turned to the person I'm with and said, you know, you've shared a lot with me. Can I reflect back what I've heard to see if I'm understanding? Yes. Is that a way to get there? I would say that that can't help but be beneficial, right? Okay. To, again, going from emotional contagion, which we talked about earlier, to what we would like to be, which is in emotional resonance, right? Where we're actually resonating with what that person is experiencing. And the other thing I would just add to that is, don't let that be the only conversation. And be, most of the time, people in the moment that they're receiving feedback, because our brains will only uh, um, hold on to the negative and all anything positive that was said in that conversation is probably going to just fall away. We say our brains are like, are like Teflon for good and Velcro for bad. Right. Invite, invite a follow-up, invite a follow-up. Say, you know, we've talked a lot today. We've covered a lot maybe it would be good for us to think about coming back in a week's time and invite it without um, having it as an expectation. Would that work for you? That's really wonderful advice. And today we've talked a lot and we've covered a lot. So (laughs) for people that want to come back and talk more with you or find out more about your work, Marissa, where can people find you? Oh, well, easiest place to find us is at our website. We're at potentialproject.com, all one word. Uh, We have lots of resources there. We post our articles and and, uh, lots of other ways that you can engage with us besides. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. We put a lot uh, on our Potential Project LinkedIn page too. Marissa, I can't thank you enough. By the way, I'm buying the book for several people in my team right now because I think Uh they're really going to appreciate the work you're doing so important. It's been such a delight. Thank you for joining us. For me as well. Thank you, Laura. And all of you, thank you so much for joining us. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and find me on LinkedIn. Our podcast is available 24-7 wherever you get yours. Just search for Women at Work and Laura's Arrow and you'll find us. And of course... The show wouldn't be complete without thanking my beloved producer, Patty Hall, our fantastic sound engineer, Chris Tooks, and Kara Pogue, who has been helping me behind the scenes back in the Wharton People Analytics offices. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work here on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and bring your curiosity. Take care. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.